ideas and new technology are causing seismic shifts in the media industry. Where are we headed? What does it mean? Keep listening. Media strategist Gabriella Mirabelli talks with the brightest minds in entertainment and business. Meet the innovators, the risk takers, and the disruptors on the front lines of change from Hollywood, Wall Street, Silicon Valley, and beyond. The future is coming to a screen near you. Are you ready? This is the Up Next podcast with Gabriella Mirabelli. Welcome to Up Next. I'm your host, Gabriella Mirabelli. My guest today is Adam Bandley. He's the author of Relational Intelligence and the managing director of Bandley and Associates. Today, we'll be discussing his book and some of the things that readers can expect to take away to apply in their own lives. Hi, Adam. Thank you so much for joining us today. How are you? Great. A lot of the narrative around social platforms is that they support communities and connection. And yet we know that the research shows that a lot of young people are more depressed than previous generations. What do you think is going on and why? I think there's really two big things that are happening. I think one, the the advent of technology, we're connecting more than ever before, but we're building relationships less than ever before. And so Mm. people have easy access to communication, easy access to their phone, their tablets, but people have lost the art of building genuine relationships. And I think that's only been exacerbated by what's happened with COVID and many of us being isolated in our homes and not being able to communicate with people. So interesting. So very true. In your book, Relational Intelligence, it's designed to help people build their relationship enhancing skills. And you've broken the process into five essential skills. And I'd like to touch on each one so that people can develop a macro understanding of the process. The book is much more detailed. I'm just saying that for the listeners. Uh, So let's start with establishing rapport. What is the skill comprised of? Yep. So establishing rapport is the first skill of relational intelligence. That is really someone's ability to create an initial positive connection with another person. And so what does that actually look like in practicality? It's things like making a good first impression on someone, how you draw someone into the conversation. It goes very basic in terms of the words that you use. You know, words can bring people in, they can push people away. So it's how you use words to find common ground with others. And there are a number of factors that impact how you establish rapport, the perceptions that you have of your yourself, the perceptions you have of others, biases or unconscious things that may impact you. And then it goes down to just the energy and the enthusiasm that you bring to a conversation. Things like eye contact, nonverbal body gestures, and then really just making it fun. I think great people who establish rapport know how to use humor and they know how to engage people in a conversation. Right. Well, you mentioned that, you know, a good first impression. So, you know, there's that old adage, you only get one chance to make a first impression. Is establishing rapport something you can do later in a relationship? And if so, how is late stage rapport building different? Yeah, I think it really it has to be early in a relationship. Once okay. you know, again, there's that saying that you can get a you get a perspective of someone in the first five minutes you're with them. So it really is that first time you get to meet someone. As we get into the other skills, you can the second skill is understanding others, and that's an ever evolving process. But that first chance that you get, whether it's in a business meeting, on a date with family, those first impressions are usually lasting for people. Oh, wow. So people may be doomed a little bit in that first impression category. They really got to work that going forward. It's a let's look forward to the future. So as you mentioned, understanding others is, is the next thing. What is the critical tactic used to improve this skill? 
Yeah. So this skill is really about being intentional and putting in the time and effort to get to know people on a deep level. The really critical thing here is that you have to have good EQ. You have to be able to understand your emotions, the emotions of others, and then how to manage emotions effectively in the moment. So people who really do well at understanding others, they're active listeners, they're Mm -hmm. curious and inquisitive, and they know how to put themselves in other people's shoes. Right. So really questions, gathering information and and reading those social skills, but not everyone has an equal ability to read the room or grasp the nuance of reading social skills. What are some of the ways that people can develop and improve this skill? Yeah. So there's, you know, from being trained as an organizational psychologist, we use a number of these assessments like the Myers-Briggs or the Enneagram. So I would recommend to any of your listeners, you know, going and taking a test or an assessment online about EQ to learn about how well you can understand emotions, how well you process or manage emotions. There's a number of tools that are out there on the internet people can use to just get a sense of a baseline of where they are today. And then there's a number of different ways in in our practice and the work that we do, we do a lot of executive coaching with our clients and our CEOs that we work with. And a lot of times it'll be a simple thing like a assessment to get an understanding of where someone is and Mm -hmm. then building a personal development plan with them and say, hey, I really want to work on getting better at active listening and then different things, behaviors and skills they can practice to do that. Are these assessment tools free? Can people find a free tool or is everything going to be a little bit of a cost? No, if you go online and you type in Myers-Briggs or Enneagram, you can take any one of those tests. There are different types. I mean, the ones you can get online are quick and easy. You can Mm -hmm. figure out something in 15 minutes. Then there are assessments that cost money and all that stuff too, but anyone can go online and take a Myers-Briggs assessment. And that would give somebody a a good idea of the areas that they maybe have blind spots. Yeah, it could tell you whether you're more extroverted or introverted, if you're more of a thinker or a feeler, if you're more of someone who understands perception and can read a room, or if you're more cognitively based and you like to think through problems. Hmm. Interesting. Okay, so embracing individual differences, how does that play out? Yeah, it's a really great question. So I think we look at embracing individual differences as the ability to acknowledge and accept that everyone comes from different backgrounds and experiences. And so, like you said, that can be race, ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation, cross-cultural factors. The key P with this behavior is Mm -hmm. diversity of thought. So can you bring people around the table who have different makeups, whatever that may look like, and everyone feel like they're valued and appreciate to share their point of view at the table? I love the old adage, the kind of the diversity one, that diversity is like being invited to a party. Equity, they say, is like being invited to dance at the party, but inclusion is being able to help plan the party. And so when we think about embracing individual differences, it's about creating inclusive cultures where diversity of thought is valued. Can it work in a hierarchical relationship? In terms of a direct report with the manager? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it works both ways. Okay. But, uh, you know, I think people who are employees or frontline level employees, you know, relationships are a two-way street. They're reciprocal. So there absolutely is a part that employers play and mm. there's a part that employees play as well. Well, I think that that is a very interesting point because sometimes I know, for instance, I'm brought in to do some coaching or work with somebody and it's you know, Mary Jane has this issue, this problem, this thing that is entirely wrong with Mary Jane. And it's like, well, it's a system. Is it always a system? Is it always, I mean, somebody may have a lion's share of sort of irritating or rough behavior, but invariably there's a dynamic there. 
Absolutely. I mean, there's a dynamic in every relationship. It's a give and take. So if you have those kind of employees that are a little more difficult to deal with or maybe a little more challenging, it really goes back to are you being intentional about getting to know them? A lot of times mm. people who have you know unique personalities, maybe more passive aggressive, they just aren't showing genuine authenticity. And so as a leader, as an employee, as anyone really, if you show up authentically and you look to really understand another person, you can build a relationship. Interesting. So developing trust, and this seems like a slower burn and also a more fragile one in that, you know, what does developing trust look like in a business setting? Yeah. In a business setting, it's about, um, being in, and we define it as being putting your place in a vulnerable setting where you can be exposed to the actions of others. And so in business, that's partnering on a piece of work, being part of a team. To do that, you first really have to know and understand yourself. In the book, I talk about this idea, know thyself. Mm-hmm. You have to know what makes you tick, what how you're wired, the things that impact you. If you're able to do that, you'll be able to extend trust to other people. And trust is really about creating the psychological safety for people to share sides of themselves, to contribute, to add value. But going back to your last point, it is a reciprocal relationship. So I talk about in the book, the bank account of trust. Mm. Leaders, they should be being intentionally generous with how they sow into relations with their people, whether it's finding ways to develop them, whether it's finding ways to give them broader exposure. But there are certain factors that impact trust. So things very simple, like your competence, are you willing and able to do the job you're doing? Commitment, do you honor your commitments? Consistency, do you show up the same way day in and day out for your people? And then character and integrity. All those factors play into how you show up to develop trust with people and what they will do with you. So trust is always a two-way exercise. I want to- Two-way exercise, but it is the most important relational intelligence skill. So can one party encourage another to be vulnerable or must the locus for this motivation to be vulnerable be owned by each individual? I think I think it's leaders' responsibilities to extend that and show that vulnerability. Now, again, depending on the nature of the role and the nature of the business, certain people have certain things that they want to keep private. But mm. can you empathize with someone else and share a story maybe from your career? I can think of a perfect example. I'm working with a leader right now who has been in a company for like 20 years, and he's now part of a program where they mentor young men and women who are kind of high potentials in the organization. Mm-hmm. So when he's mentoring someone, he starts those mentoring relationships by asking them questions and all offering stories from his own career that may be helpful to them. So that degree, again, it's not deep vulnerability, but it's saying, hey, I'm a human. Here's things I learned along the way, what's worked, what hasn't. And so it creates a sense of, okay, this person's normal. This person's someone I can talk to, which in turn will make someone more open with them. Right. And so all of this, this trust building, embracing individual differences, understanding others, establishing rapport, it all helps slide into influence. What is at the heart of an individual's ability to influence others? Yeah. So first, how we define influence, people define it in different ways. In in my model, my framework, I define influence as the ability to have a positive impact on the lives of others. Um, So this is the most powerful skill in relational intelligence. And what it's really about is wanting to bring the best out of the people around you. It's putting people and culture first if you're in organizational settings. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not about manipulation or control or top-down authority. You know, dynamic, life-changing relationships happen when people really grow and develop in terms of who they are. And so the role that you can play in helping them do that is what cultivating influence is really about. Okay. Well, you made a good point that it's not manipulation and it's not control. A lot of people, you know, say, well, if it's done something nice, that's influence. If it's done as something not so nice, that's manipulation. So are there, is there more to it than that? Is manipulation different in a particular way 
I mean, control, I think, is done by fiat. You, you can hierarchically, you know, legislate something to happen. Yeah. But what would be a difference between a manipulative action and an influential yeah. action? Yeah, so I, I did research back on this 20 years ago when I was doing my doctoral work, and we studied the concept of Machiavellianism. And uh-huh. so certain leaders who use people as means to an end. Mm-hmm. And so you can quickly tell if someone is self-serving or looking to get to their outcomes and use you as part of that process. You may not catch it in the first or second time you're interacting with them, but these type of people are very good at getting short-term goals accomplished, but they do not build long-term sustainable relationships because of that self-serving tendency. It's the short-term self-servingness that makes them short-term gains. Yeah. Yeah. And you'll be able to tell those people it's very, very simple things. When you sit down with a leader, do they say I more than we? I mean, simple things in terms of how they view their team. Do they when they have to present to senior leaders, do they give their direct reports an opportunity to present or an opportunity to speak? In my work, I've seen a lot of these leaders who are narcissistic or Machiavellian. They don't like to share the spotlight. They like to be the center of attention. Right. Well, a lot of this seems like it takes time. Is there a real time factor that people should understand and allow for or can things be accelerated? I mean, it really depends on the, the 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 amount of time you spend with someone. So if you look at romantic relationships, for example, most people now meet folks through apps or online and you get a certain profile of someone or a certain way they seem. The more you spend time with them, the more you get to know them. You can move through these five stages from establishing rapport to understanding another person to learning about their differences, where they grew up, who their family was. So In different settings, it can happen at a different pace, but it really depends on the commitment on both parties, both people, in terms of what they want to put into the relationship. Right. Well, I want to go back to something I mentioned at the top, which is, you know, something you enter a system already in motion. I mean, most people who are listening to this are adults. They work with people who they've already met and maybe they've made missteps. Maybe there have been breaches of trust either on their part or somebody else's. Uh, So how does it work? I mean, you have an example in the book of a client who had a style that burned bridges. He didn't listen, didn't ask questions, didn't read the room. And he ended up being let go because not only was he not interested in improving, his leadership had felt that he had irreparably broken trust. Could that situation have been salvaged if he had been on board that he could change? Or was it, you know, once you break that trust, it was really done for him? So it's really interesting. We've started to do a lot of research at my firm on when trust is broken. What are the four or five ways that you can rebuild it? And again, the the underlying theme here- And really a a workplace environment. At a workplace environment, absolutely, yeah. So I think the first piece is really, you have to be able to deal with any negative behaviors or blind spots that you might have. There's a number of blind spots that we found to be preventing folks from building strong relationships. So the first step is figure out what your blind spots are. An example of a blind spot, just to to let people picture one in their mind. Poor management of emotions or a lack of self-awareness or a lack of social awareness, like you mentioned, reading a room. Okay. These are all blind spots that certain leaders could have that could prevent them from having an impact on other people. If you're able to identify the blind spots, then there has to be a, a willingness in working with a coach or working with someone to kind of revisit your core beliefs about values in your organization or the way that you connect with people and being able to kind of say, okay, if I operated more in a top-down hierarchical iron fist type way, how is that 
impacted me in a negative way and what behaviors would I need to change to really have a positive impact on others. And so it's kind of identifying those core beliefs, resetting them to be something different that are more team focused in that example. Mm. And then it's identifying your triggers along the way. For people who are really poor at managing their emotions, there are certain things that get them angry or frustrated. So knowing when that's happening and being able to remove themselves from a situation. I think about this example all the time. There are certain uh, clients that we work with, they have a habit of responding to emails right away. And so the emotion in the moment, they can snap an email right off and very simple things. I'll say, hey, if you need to write the email, write it, put it in your save mailbox, wait 24 hours, go back and read it again and then see if it's what you want to send. But it's those type of simple things. Right. Well, going back to that example of the gentleman who had burned a lot of bridges and broken a lot of trust, you were brought in to coach him. And then the leadership was like, you know what? It isn't working for us as leaders was part of when you come into situation, situation like that, if let's say he had been game to improve and they then, would you then have that conversation with them that now, as he was making some improvements, it was their turn to maybe adjust their behavior. Would you? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 100%. I mean, I think if you have a leader showing the willingness and interest to want to change, there are different parts in our process when we do a six month or year coaching engagement where we'll do stakeholder feedback, or we'll have broader alignment meetings where we bring in HR or their manager. So everyone involved knows kind of what we're focused on Mm -hmm. as the person's coach or trusted advisor. I'm identifying things that they are doing in in like moving towards where they want to go. And so those things are communicated out to different people in the organization. And what we'll typically do is we'll do a 360 stakeholder. We'll get perspectives of others on the start of an engagement and then on the back end. Mm-hmm. And it really creates a good opportunity to talk to other people too and share that, you know, this person has changed or they made some adjustments so that other people can appreciate those as well. A lot of times you have people who have become successful in part because they're narcissist, in part because they're Machiavellian. And so it worked for them. And and then is the is the belief that eventually you hit a point in your career where it no longer works? Yeah. Are there some or or are there some industries that for whatever reason they're short turnaround? The entertainment industry, people come together to make a film and then they go away. And so if yeah. you can just suck it up, you can deal with these really crazy yeah. personalities. How would you assess the success factor of some maladaptive behaviors. So I have a fundamental belief that those people do not thrive in the long term um, or they're not happy in their personal professional relationships. I don't believe that you can be a narcissist and get through in life. And there are people who are and they have no self-awareness. But then, you know, I can think of an example like Steve Jobs, Hmm. Um, what he created at Apple and the iPhones and everything that he built. But he got ousted in the 80s from Apple, came back. But he had destructive relationships with his children, with his employees. People hated working for him, but he was brilliant. So you might say he was successful in creating the iPhone, but I would say he had no relationships around him. So how are we defining success? Right. I felt the same way about all the the laudatory writing around him because he was such a deeply complicated person and his behavior was not so great, you know, really not so great. So um, let's take an example in a workplace where a leader has a difficult relationship with their peers. So it isn't a hierarchical situation, but they're senior level people. There isn't active sabotage going on, but it's not a place of mutual support and trust. What steps could an individual take to start to improve things, to start the flywheel going in a positive direction? So you're saying that they have kind of destructive relationships or negative relations with their peers and how can they work through that? Yeah, their behaviors, 
their, the motivations for their behaviors have been misread by their peer group as being high-handed or aggressive when that isn't the spirit of what they were behaving, but it was how things landed with these other people. So yeah. they've been made aware that this is how they're being perceived. Yeah, yeah. How can they, how, how do you go about demonstrating without being a sort of, you know, barrier chest, I am being <laughs> kind now, yeah, yeah. you know, what, where that just feels inauthentic, you know, what yeah. are, what are the ways in which you build it and how much going back to the time question, how much time does that take? Yeah. yeah it's a really good question. So I'll give you a real life example. One of my clients that I'm working with now, this was a leader in the consumer products industry. And there was a, a number of promotions that were taking place in the organization and he thought he was going to get one and he didn't. Mm-hmm. And on a couple of calls after with his peers and his colleagues, he was folding his arms on a zoom or he was just displaying some behaviors that people felt he was being a sore loser. Mm. So the perception started to get out there about him is that like, he doesn't play well with others. He's not a good colleague or teammate. And so he came to me on his own and said, Hey, I'm getting this sense that the way that I want to show up is not being reflected in the way people see me. Mm. Um, Exactly. Exactly. that." we started a coaching engagement and it starts with, you know, there's three pieces to effective coaching. First is how do you get that self-awareness? And so my process, when I work with leaders, we'll give them some type of personality assessment on the front end to kind of see how they're wired. I spend two to three hours sitting down with someone to hear their story, their life story. What are the things that make them who they are today? And then we do some of the stakeholder interviews to get other people's perspectives. And then I give that feedback to someone and I say, look, perception is reality. Here's how people view you. And there is that moment where people have the realization and they accept it and they take it. And there's a humility factor there. Or other times people don't. In this situation, he said, wow, I didn't realize that's how I'm being viewed. And then we said, okay, let's put together a plan of three goals you want to work on over the next six months so we can change the minds and hearts of your colleagues. And so for him, it was very simple. It was being able to strengthen his self-awareness in the moment. Did he know what he was doing and the impact that was having on others? Mm -hmm. Uh, The second piece was around how does he better manage his impressions when he's in front of peers or colleagues to seem more collaborative. Mm-hmm. And then the third piece is really having better political astuteness. Can he read a room and understand the different political landscape that's going on or the nuances between other people? And he committed to those three goals. And we worked on it in our coaching sessions and he had other team meetings with his colleagues. And at the end of the six months, he had made really marked progress. And about eight or nine months after we finished our engagement, he got promoted. Oh, that's fantastic. What would be some of the things? So, you know, better political astuteness. What's a tactic that somebody can employ to get better at being politically astute? I mean, do they read a book and learn how to do it? Is it, you know, what is that? Yeah, there's a couple. I mean, so yeah, obviously reading a book is great, but what I tell people is go and observe others who do it really well. In every organization, you have the folks who are the master networkers or the people who seem to, they call them the, so people will say uh, they have really good people skills. Mm. I want to change that narrative to say people have really good relational intelligence, but Mm. there are people in everyone's organization that knows how to navigate the political landscape. And I say the way they do that is they intentionally and authentically build relationships with all a variety of stakeholders. And so my advice to anyone would be get a, get a book or get something to read about how to do it and then go in your organization and look for the people who do it. If you're early in your career, find a mentor or someone who has that skill. Um, Mm -hmm. If you're later in your career, you know, degrees of humility in terms of just observing your peers or your bosses or people who do it well, seeing it and reading it are two totally different things. Well, right. I mean, that's why I was being a little sarcastic with reading it in the book, because I I think it does seem like something you need to, to understand how 
how to watch. And it's a bit challenging if people have been on zoom, it's not as easy to, to see somebody's full body, their full expression and their full use of all of their body to listen and engage and and lean in. Now, let's I think there's something we're missing because of what's going on in the pandemic. A number of our clients are starting to go back with a hybrid model. And I'm a firm believer that you have to be in the office, even if it's one or two days a week, to have those human face-to-face connections, because there are things that we just can't pick up on over Zoom, eye contact, body language. There's certain things we don't see. And you know, leaders and their employees are suffering because of that. Well, right. I, I also think that's why there was Zoom fatigue, because you're trying so hard to get all the cues when that's you right. only have this very small box from which to get those cues. That's right. So now let's take an example where someone's supervisor is a bit of a bull in a china shop, doesn't listen. Yeah. Now, this this is their supervisor. Can they influence that person to be better or yeah. And how do you influence up? I understand managing up in terms of deadlines, keeping people aware, but how do you behaviorally manage up? Yeah, it's a good question. So I think it goes back to the trust piece, whether you have a toxic boss or you have a boss that you connect with three things. Do you honor your commitments to your boss? If they give you work to do, are there things that you can go above and beyond to exceed expectations so that you're viewed as a star performer on your team? Mm -hmm. Um, Commitment is then the other piece there around having the ability to be consistent in how you show up. But then also it's about extending and looking to build the relationship with that person. And if they don't want to reciprocate that, then it's just about doing your job to the best that you can. We're sitting in the great resignation now. Employees have options. And Mm -hmm. so if they have a toxic boss or someone who's not intentional about growing or developing them, they're taking jobs elsewhere. So I would tell someone in that situation, if they're not getting what they need out of their leader, they should leave. Well, I was just going to ask that if a leader does not care or connect with you and does not seem inclined to do that, that's probably not going to change, correct? You should actually be looking for another situation. Absolutely. So, you know, earlier we were talking about some of the maladaptive personality traits, the narcissism. Is it possible to build authentic relationships with those people or do you just need to have tactics to manage them and, and limit the damage? Yeah, I would say it's tactics and limit the damage. If someone's self-serving or Machiavellian or narcissistic, you know, they're not going to change their ways unless they have a burning platform or reason to do it. You know, in the situation in the book, well, I talk short, about, yeah, short, short-termism though. If your goals align, fine, but well, even short-termism. The, the gentleman that I was coaching, we talk about in the book, like he was struggling and he was struggling in his role, and what had got him to that point was not going to work for him going forward. And so he had a look in the mirror moment where he said, "Okay, I'm either going to get demoted or fired unless I change my approach." And sometimes people have to have that kind of, you know, whether it's a humbling experience or whether it's hit rock bottom, there has to be a moment where they say, okay, what I've done in the past may have been gotten me to this point, but it won't help me going forward. And then they have to change or, you know, things will happen. Well, and and that takes a certain amount of grace. I mean, it is difficult to onboard in a sincere and truly thoughtful way, hard feedback. That is simply a challenging thing for anybody to do, especially if up to date people had been successful in their lives. So leaving our last question really is, is it possible to coach or change someone who doesn't believe they need to change? In my experience is no, if there is not a desire, interest or awareness to change, those people are not good folks to coach. So Hmm. I had a number of experiences where we came in with the best intentions and the employer had the best intentions. I talked about one of the examples in a book and I have another one recently where the leader just didn't think they had the issue. Everyone else had the problem. 
And right. They, and that's all. And they're very good at telling you, you know, chapter and verse on, you know, the Festivus airing of grievances about everybody else without seeing much of their own shortcomings. Is there any other thing that I haven't asked? I mean, obviously, the book is a very long book with a lot of rich information, but really coming at it from a lens of help. I'm working in a challenging situation. Not everybody is authentic. Not everybody wants to build that trust. It's it's been hard. We've been working remote. You know, if there's one skill that tends to cross all of these different things, what would that one skill be? Yeah, I mean, that's a really, I mean, obviously I think all five skills are important, but this idea of inclusivity, I think for leaders to really bring people on their teams who are diverse and who have different backgrounds and experiences, I think that's really critical now. We saw that with what happened with social justice in 2020. Diversity and equity inclusion was talked about in organizations for years. It's mm. become much more of a central factor here. I can tell you from personal, just in my own firm, we just don't talk about diversity. We have a diverse team. So I have people on my team who are black, white, Hispanic, straight, gay. I have a variety of people who bring differences to the table, which makes us think better and operate better as consultants. Right. And in terms of a tactic that helps, would you say listening? Is yeah, the... active listening is always, I mean, most people want to talk before they listen. <laughs> so if you want to have a quick way to, there's this saying that you can um, gain more followership or respect in the first two months if you listen to other people than in the first two years if you try to get people to listen to you. And so, absolutely. oh, I like that. I like that one. That's a good one. I think I'm going to steal that one. <laughs> Thank you so much. I will have a click to purchase link on the podcast page, the episode. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. We've reached the end of another episode of Up Next. I'd like to close by thanking my production team at Up Next, my friend Rob Melton, the voice artist who recorded our open. And of course, all of you, the members of our audience, thank you. I'll be talking to you again next time right here on Up Next.